Colossians chapter 1, verse 20 is our focus this morning, but we'll read through the paragraph. Remember the context that we find it in. As you're opening your Bibles, let me welcome those who might be joining us for the live stream or later on watching the video uh, online. Uh, We welcome you. We invite you to be with us, uh, to be among God's people for the cheer and fellowship and the ministry of the church, that it could benefit you. Colossians chapter 1, reading from the English Standard Version, beginning in verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. May God bless the reading, hearing, believing, and obeying of his holy word. Amen. Amen. Working through this spectacular paragraph of scripture with this wonderful uh, picture of Christ, we come to verse 20, and it mentions death, and it mentions the cross. It mentions blood. And the reason I selected this passage is not only that it answers so beautifully what child is this, which is appropriate for the season we're in. It gives us that answer plenty in the verses that precede. But it also adds this answer that the one in the manger is the crucified one. You see, the goal of the incarnation is the cross. Jesus came that he might shed his blood and die. And the Christmas story, in one sense, requires us to press on to the Easter story, to Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, for the mission of Christ, the Son of God who came into the world, connects those. I was reading recently an article um, and it said the bigger purpose behind Bethlehem was Calvary. And I go, amen, I'm preaching on that. So I kept reading. The purpose of the manger was realized in the horrors of the cross, this author writes. The purpose of his birth was his death. Or to put it more personally, Christmas is necessary because I am a sinner. The incarnation reminds us of our desperate condition before a holy God. Not only this recent article, but 30 years ago, back uh, 1992, Will Smith in World Magazine wrote this provocative article. Um, I checked it, and it's still provocative. He said uh, the title was Christmas is Disturbing. Any real understanding of the Christmas message will disturb anyone. Hear what he means by that. 
I think we'll agree in light of our text this morning. He said, many people otherwise, who otherwise ignore God and the church have some religious feeling or feel they ought to attend church this time of year. So they make their way to a service or a Christmas program. And when they go, they come away feeling vaguely warmed or at least better for having gone, but they're not disturbed. As long as we can keep him in the manger, he writes, and feel the sentimental feelings we have for babies, Jesus doesn't disturb us. But once we understand that his coming means for every one of us either salvation or condemnation, he disturbs us deeply. What should be just as disturbing as the awful work of Christ uh, uh, to accomplish the salvation of his people on the cross. His very name testifies to that work. That baby was born, writes Will Smith, that he who had no sin would become sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The baby's destiny from the moment of his conception was to take the place of sinners. And Will Smith concludes, when I look into the manger, I come away shaken as I realize again that he was born to pay the unbearable penalty for my sins. That's the message of Christmas. God reconciled the world to himself through baby Jesus. Man's reconciliation with God is possible only through the cross of Jesus and faith in Christ. Yeah, he's writing and he's trying to be provocative. Uh, We don't typically think of Christmas as disturbing, but it is proper for us at Christmas time to see the one who was born came to die. And that's the climax of his days on earth. And this passage arrives at verse 20 as if to say the one who was God, who made everything, Uh, who who in every way had the fullness of God in him and the father was pleased with the son, he came and brought about reconciliation. And he brought about that reconciliation through the shedding of blood on the cross. Those all important details. The Jesus we know and love is the crucified one. And we should not be ashamed of that. For it brings us life. Let's ask a couple of questions of our text this morning as we look at the Bible and verse 20 here. Let's ask the first question To whom do we owe our salvation? To whom do we owe our salvation? The verse makes it pretty clear through him to reconcile to himself all things. Who's doing the reconciling? Who's doing the saving? Well, first of all, it's not us, it's not you and me. And the Bible's pretty clear about that. All we like sheep have gone astray. We can't even keep ourselves on the straight and narrow. How can we redeem ourselves or anyone else? You see, the earth was, was filled with sin after the fall of Adam and Eve. And, and it has affected all of our beings. And it's brought upon guilt upon us so that our sins require payment before a holy God. We are alienated from God. That's why we need reconciliation. I think one of the clearest doctrines of the Bible to prove just by walking around in the world is depravity. That it's a fallen and sinful world. That you don't have to teach a child to say no to its parent. It comes forth from a heart that is not 
holy and perfect. Sin has marked our word, world and keeps men from saving themselves. Even if you resolve today to live a perfect life and somehow pulled it off from now to your death, what about the sins of your past? And those who diminish sins, and you may be thinking to yourself, I'm no great sinner, I've never stolen, I've never killed, I've never committed adultery. Think of, of how all those little sins add up. I remember the old illustration from D. James Kennedy, if you were to sin, but uh, three times a day, roughly. Little sins, you know, failing to give thanks, hedging on the truth, what have you, sins of the eye, sins of the hand, sins of the eye. Three, three times a day, that's about a thousand times a year. And if you live to the ripe old age, let's say of 75, that's 75,000 sins. That's just with that little paradigm. More likely, it's three sins an hour. And we can multiply that number by 24 and the math gets too hard for me. But that's a lot of sin. We can't dig ourselves out of this hole. We can't reconcile ourselves. We can't just come to God and say, I'm sorry. Because God is holy and just and demands an accounting who will pay for those sins. Justice must be satisfied. The old Puritan preacher John Davenant has a wonderful commentary on Colossians. I'll quote John Davenant a couple times. He said, imagine if we had to treat or negotiate. He's talking about treaties. If we had to treat with a holy God hostile to us sinners, or even just to raise our eyes to heaven while under our load of sins, who could think on the divine majesty without trembling? How could we even enter the courts of a holy God to plead for mercy? We're stained, we're sinned, we're alienated. We need someone else to save us. We need the righteousness of another to cover us and to clothe us. So we didn't save ourselves. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things. Notice that it wasn't even an angel. Let's kick it up a notch. If human beings can't get us out of this predicament, what about the angels? They're really powerful. And Christmas, we talk a lot about angels. And that's a good thing, and Hebrews reminds us about angels. When angels show up in the Old Testament, do you remember the impact they have upon people? They are pretty scary. They're not the little cherubs with their harps like you might see on a Hallmark card. They're scary. They're fierce. They're warriors, messengers, supernatural beings capable. One angel can, can wipe out a legion of men. Just powerful beings. And angels are real. How come God didn't get us out of this predicament by sending an angel? He has his reasons. We'll see some of those reasons today. But let me just mention in passing some uh, profound thoughts that John Davenant had that it wasn't an angel. He was pondering that, and you know the Puritans pondered quite a bit and has several pages. He, his premise was this, redemption. If we get saved, rescued, redeemed, redemption more excites us to love than just being created. So we love the one who made us, 
our creator. But if you get rescued, you tend to love the rescuer, the deliverer, all the more. So he says, if therefore we had been redeemed by any other than he who created us, we would have loved him more than our creator. God will not share his glory with another, but God himself, our creator God, says, I will redeem a people for myself. He does not send angels, as powerful as they are, to extricate us from our sin. And there are many other reasons angels can't shed blood for us. They're not connected to Adam. They're not connected to the human race, like Jesus is. Note the third and final point on this opening heading is, the Creator came to save God the Son is our reconciling Redeemer. In this paragraph that we've had before us now for a few weeks, we see that uh, it first spoke of many of the blessings of redemption. And then it spoke of the uniqueness of our Redeemer. And now it tells us of our redemption by blood shed on the cross. By this God-man, Jesus Christ. You see, it's important to connect the whole paragraph. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, the creator. All things were created through him and for him. He is the divine one. He himself comes to redeem, to reconcile us. How profound. In the Old Testament, that was prophesied. I hope you read your Old Testament. If you don't know where to start, try Isaiah. And press on. Isaiah will knock your socks off. It's filled with gospel truth. Pictures of God and his patience. But also his holiness and his justice. He's not fooled by his people just being religious. It's a real deal. Isaiah is a great place to start. You'll see in Isaiah, if you keep reading and get to chapter 40, the tone changes as it focuses all the more on the Messiah, the suffering servant of God. You get to Isaiah 42, you read this in verses 6 and 7. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. Speaking of the Messiah. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. The Lord would give his Redeemer. The Lord would give his Son. Uh, Before Advent, we were going through the book of 2 Corinthians, one of the New Testament letters. And and we'd already looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which explains how the creator God in Jesus brought about our redemption. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 and following. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Notice that getting saved uses the language of creation. Kind of sounds like it's the work of a creator to me, but I digress. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, 2 Corinthians 5.19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. God is our Redeemer. To whom do we owe our salvation? Glory to God who saves sinners. That's my theology in a nutshell. God saves sinners. 
That's what the Bible teaches. Okay, if God saves sinners and we owe him our salvation, here's another question for our text this morning. Why did he have to die on the cross? It's, it's, the, it's the stumbling block for so many. They, they love the parables of Jesus. They love the stories, the miracles. They love that Jesus pokes back at those Pharisees. Oh, they love it. But when you speak of Christ laying down his life on the cross, that's offensive to many. They don't understand. Why die on the cross? To accomplish our salvation wasn't simply to come and say, hey guys, this is the way, follow me over here. And to give us an example of how to live or where to go. That doesn't take away sin. That doesn't pay any price to justice. That does not appease the wrath of God. There's no propitiation. There's no expiation. There's no atonement in a philosophy of life. Christ died on the cross first and foremost to shed his blood for our forgiveness. Literally shed his blood. Hebrews 9 verse 22 talks about salvation and it reminds us of the context of God's law and prophets. Indeed, under the law of God, Almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there will be no forgiveness of sins. Really? Yes. The whole Old Testament displays that. The only way God could tabernacle in the midst of his holy people Israel is if they set up an altar, and if blood was shed... To give them a picture of sacrifice and the price for sin. For breaking covenant with God to have their sins covered in the Old Testament, the blood of animals was laid on the altar. And as Hebrews would later explain, that didn't really forgive sins, but it was what God said they must do. And they were saved by faith in God's provision And God's ultimate provision is the Lord Jesus Christ, whose blood once for all time does take away the sins of his people. Christ died for me 2,000 years ago, and he paid for all my sins, my past sins, my present sins, and any future sin, all covered by Christ. That's why Jesus is so unique. Having made purification for our sins, the Bible says he sat down at the right hand of God. He's not holding a mass every day for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is not like the daily Levitical priest in the temple every day with a morning or evening sacrifice. He sacrificed himself once. His holy divine blood covers all our sin. And he sat down at the right hand of God in heaven and said, these are those for whom I have died. Not one is lost. He will bring us to heaven because his shed blood takes away our sin. Colossians here talks about this reconciliation. All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We're going to dwell on peace next week. That's the theme for next week's sermon. So I won't talk about peace much today. But why die on the cross? So that that blood could be shed. 
in this same letter, Colossians, in chapter 2, he mentions that uh, first in chapter 1, verse 22, and then again in chapter 2. This method, this message of blood. Colossians 1, 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless. Reconciled by his body of flesh. That's why Jesus had to be born, that he would have blood to shed for his people. Angels couldn't do that. You see how Christmas manger connects with Good Friday, cross, and resurrection. Colossians 2 verse 13, just to remind you the theme as it continues. 2.13 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses, amen, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The cross is at the center of our salvation. But why death on the cross? Well, this verse begins us to think of the law and the transaction in the heavenly realm. And I would say this, the death on the cross was necessary to lift the curse. Let's talk about that word curse. And I know it's not a, a, generally a Christmas term, although it appears in one of our Christmas carols, see if you can remember. Christ died on the cross to redeem us and to lift the curse. What's the connection between death and crucifixion versus other ways? That would have to do with lifting the curse. Well, at least two. The Old Testament is filled with many types and figures of how the Messiah would suffer and die. One of those images is the the lifting up of the bronze serpent. We won't look at the story today, but in the book of Numbers, in the Old Testament, chapter 22, there was an event and the people had sinned. And those people came to Moses. They had sinned and they knew they were in big trouble. They came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord against you. Pray to the Lord that he might take away uh, the serpents from us. In their sin, these snakes were coming and biting people and they were dying. Wages of sin is death. So that makes sense. So Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses, this is Numbers 21, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, that's fiery, that's the color, bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. That's an unusual story. But people who were repentant, whom God in his grace was going to forgive, gave them an object for their faith. If you're truly repentant, you look here, believe and pray. The one that I set before you will represent your redemption. The bronze serpent on a pole. I, I, you know, I, I don't know if I would have naturally thought of that as a picture of what the Messiah would do. But Jesus thought about it. And in John chapter 3, you've heard of John 3.16. I hope you've read the whole chapter. Jesus was explaining this and said in John 3.14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes on him may have eternal life. 
Jesus understood his death by elevating himself on that beam on the cross to be like lifting up the serpent, that those who were bitten and dying as a consequence of their sins might see, believe, and live. So death on the cross connects with that imagery. This is God's provision, the one who is lifted up. So must the Son of Man be lifted up. I've also mentioned curse, uh, because to be nailed to a tree, to be hung on a tree, in Old Testament uh, theology meant you were cursed of God. It was an awful way to die. Deuteronomy 21 explains that. But the New Testament connects that being cursed, hanging on a tree on that wooden cross. It connects the, the curse with Christ. And Galatians 3.13 explains it. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So Christ was hung on a tree that he would bear the curse in our place. That he would be recognized. He's cursed of God, but he was innocent. He's there because of me, my curse. What does it mean for us to be cursed? Cursing means that we've broken God's law, that we're sinners. It's another way to talk about us in our fallen, rebellious state. There's a curse upon us. Galatians, which talks about law and gospel and works and how we're not saved by our works. Galatians 3.10 said, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. You see, if you set out to live by all the Ten Commandments, but you break one, that's it. You've sinned. You're fallen. And of course, as we said earlier, we break many, often. So we are under God's curse. We are lawbreakers and sinful people. We need a Savior And by dying on the cross, Jesus says to you and to me, I'm lifting that curse. I'm being cut off so that you might live. Look unto me and be saved. Jesus lifts the curse far as the curse is found. It it reminds me of something, and I I, I looked it up uh, many years ago. Nancy Guthrie Uh, wrote something. This is before COVID. I don't know if we're going to have to start dating our stories and our experiences before COVID. But uh, 2018, Nancy Guthrie was writing for Desiring God. Nancy Guthrie teaches women how to study the Bible. She and her husband have a ministry to couples who have lost children. A grief ministry It's so powerful, so effective. So I I really like Nancy's ministry. She wrote this article and it, it caught my eye. My husband and I bought burial plots the week before Christmas. I know, I know, she says, it doesn't sound very Christmassy. It's not the kind of shopping most people are busy with this time of year. Um, She's a fun writer. We sing, let earth receive her king, and we know that when Jesus came the first time, the earth did not receive her king. Instead, the earth crucified her king. When we look at the world around us, as well as the painful parts of our own lives, we know that his blessing does not yet flow as far as the curse is found. Not yet. 
Instead, she writes, we see the impact of the curse in every part of our lives. Sorrow and sin still grow, and all the thorny effects of the curse remain the reality we live day to day, year to year. She says, my husband and I know that the day is going to come when our bodies will be planted like seeds in the darkness of the earth. It will seem to some as though our lives have come to an end, but we know better. Those two little plots of ground will not prove to be our final resting place. The blessing of his resurrection life is going to penetrate the earth in which we are buried, and we will be raised to life because he has reconciled us to God. Death no longer has a claim on us. And if we die with Christ, we shall also live with Christ. Christ has conquered the curse and paid the penalty so that death will not keep us. He hung on the cross to satisfy the curse. And I'd remind you, finally, he died on the cross in particular to show the magnitude of his love. To show the magnitude of his love for sinners. It wasn't a quick, painless death. Oh, he died in his sleep. No, he took every bit of punishment that was due sinners for their sin. He took it all. Until he cried from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He shows his love for sinners by going to the final degree, facing death and paying for every sin. John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his son. Jesus so loved sinners that he laid down his life. And the Bible tells us no greater love has any man than this. That he laid down his life. Let's take a look at Romans 5 verse 8 on this matter of love. Romans 5 verse 8. I'll quote it now and again in a minute. Romans 5 verse 8 talks about how we were still weak at the right time. Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's death on the cross shows God's love for us. That's what the Bible tells us. Preacher Dick Lucas reminds us that propitiation, a death on the cross in payment for sins. Propitiation does not deny the love of God. That's the pagan way of Paying off a God. Gods in pagan religions that demand a sacrifice. They demand to be paid off so they don't kill you. Dick Lucas says propitiation of Jesus on the cross does not deny the love of God, but rather demonstrates the love of God. Because it's not as in pagan religions where they're demanding some kind of sacrifice to be appeased. God himself gives the sacrifice to win a people for himself. That's behind the cross. The love of God. But what shall we learn from the cross? What should we learn from the cross? We have several applications, several points to remember as we've looked at first uh, at Corinthians 1 verse 20 and this climax to the paragraph that this God man who made all things and for whom all things were made 
in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, he came to reconcile us. What do we need to remember? First, we need to believe in Christ as the sufficient Savior. Sufficient is the word I underlined. Believe in Christ as the sufficient Savior. That's what Paul is trying to argue with those Colossians. False teachers had rolled into town and they were diminishing Christ. So Paul defends Christ. Paul reminds them that Jesus is no rabbi from Galilee. He's the son of God. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is sufficient in his saving work. You don't need to supplement it. Where do we see that in our text? It says it here. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Nothing is outside the scope of Christ's saving work. I know most of you present, maybe there's somebody watching online that I don't know. And you may be saying, oh, you don't know all the sins I've committed. My life is a train wreck. God would never send a savior for me. Well, I've got news for you. If you're breathing on planet Earth, Christ could save you. If you humble yourself and cry out. Christ is able to reconcile anything in heaven and earth and does so by his shed blood. He is sufficient all things. And I tell you here, the commentators uh, get distracted and they get busy with the angels again. Angels are popping up here because it says all things, whether on earth or in heaven. What does Jesus have to reconcile in heaven. I know there's some Bible people here wondering that thing, so let me answer it. Does Jesus die for fallen angels? No. There's no redemption for a fallen angel. So what is there in heaven that he might have to reconcile? The phrase simply means all that is, is under the reconciliation of Christ. And yes, if you do think of it, angels are reconciled, but it's not a salvific reconciliation. It's rather a confirmation of their service, their subordination. All angels, someone said, whether by forced or faithful submission, are reconciled to God by Christ. The end of spiritual warfare. Every angel will bow before The Lord, willingly or unwillingly, it will be brought to a conclusion by Christ. That's part of what the verse means when it includes heaven here. But we have a sufficient Savior for us. All things fall under his saving work. And notice the past tense of the verse. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. It is finished. It is a complete salvation and reconciliation. Romans 5, I mentioned earlier, continues to talk about that in verses 10 and 11. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You are reconciled. You are saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. It's all covered. Christ is a sufficient Savior. Underline the word sufficient. Nothing missing. Nothing lacking. 
No other religion in the world, no other point of view, philosophy, or potential savior comes close. Men have tried. And there are other religions. Nothing offers us a God who dies for his people. Believe. We also need to learn, secondly, as we look at the cross in this transaction, that we should abhor and avoid sin. We should abhor and avoid sin. I like words, abhor, A-B-H-O-R, is that verb to recoil with disdain and horror. We're not going near sin. We are not only going to abhor it and dislike it, we are going to avoid it. We are going to turn our feet from going in that way And we're going to walk uprightly. It's interesting, this beautiful little letter to the Colossians picks up those things in chapter 3. Turn a page to Colossians 3, verse 5. It talks about avoiding the sins for which Christ died. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 5, he writes to Christians, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouths. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. So we need to abhor sin and avoid sin, put off And the next application is that we need to put on righteousness. We need to walk humbly in righteous ways and obey the Lord. Put off and put on our consequences of our conversion. That's what Colossians would tell us. So that's points two and three. Point four, what do we learn from the cross? I need to say this in a day and an age where the world is obsessed with avoiding death. Christians, you do not need to fear suffering or death. You do not need to fear suffering nor death. And we're not just talking about physical suffering and dying, but we're also talking about persecution, suffering for Christ. One sermon on this text said that Jesus died on the cross, this this most shameful and ignominious death. It's harder to think of a death more shameful and publicly humiliating than death on a cross. Jesus died that way for us to to help prepare us for how we might be treated by the world. If our Savior could endure that, there is no shame for us in enduring what men may do to us. John Davenant said this, Understand that no kind of death for righteousness sake is shameful or to be dreaded by believers. The cross of Christ arms his disciples against that fear. Don't fear suffering or death. God used suffering and death to bring about our life. He will use your life and your suffering for Christ in powerful ways. That's the way he works. And finally, 
we should learn from the cross that this is good news and we should proclaim it everywhere. The mission of Bethlehem continues today. The connection of Bethlehem with Calvary, with Golgotha, must be made. And everywhere people are talking about the manger. Everyone's talking about Christmas. They're setting up lights. They're proclaiming that they know something of the story. Well, tell them the rest of the story. Every time you see a manger scene or somebody says, Merry Christmas, look for that opening to tell them who the babe in the manger was. He was also the crucified one. (coughs) We need to continue to speak as those angels did on the hillside outside Bethlehem. When the angel appeared to the shepherds, fear not. Remember, angels are very frightening. They weren't there to punish. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, for they knew what was coming. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. He is pleased and he reconciles us to himself through Christ. Make the good news known. Tell Christmas celebrants the rest of the story. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for helping us connect the incarnation and Christmas story with the cross. May we never have the cross far from our hearts and minds. May we understand the depth and breadth of the love of Christ for us in that death, in that shed blood. And may we be emboldened with joy to give good news to others. Father, be at work in us and through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.